Returning from a brief hiatus, we wanted to cover some of the more significant developments in recent weeks, including the latest attempts to get us to take the vaccine, PatCon 2.0, war in the Middle East, and a massive continuation of the consolidation we've seen in the financial markets. More of the same, perhaps, but the accelerator pedal seems to have gotten pushed down a bit harder. Enjoy the ride. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine Welcome. Hello to the show. We've been we've been off the air for a little bit. Um, some technical and physical difficulties, notwithstanding, we're back, and uh, we we've just been watching the news like everybody else. And there's just a few things we thought we'd weigh in on for what it's worth. I think it affects everybody. Um, Hans did some prep. I did a little bit of uh, thinking on the subject. Uh, I'm sure we're also Nick, going to incidentally. And I went to the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nick, Nick got some Novocaine. I actually have a, I have a question about this. I was thinking about this. Like I, I had this whole procedure done because I had something done in the past and, uh, basically, they fucked it up, and it was being corrected. Anyways, it, it took longer than it should. And I got to thinking about, I was thinking about Marathon Man, which I've actually never seen, but I've absorbed it through osmosis, the character of Max von Sydow. And I was wondering, is it, are they, is, what, what's like, what's the Jew game here? Like, are they trying to associate the pain involved of going to the dentist with National Socialism? Or does it have something to do with typical Jewish projection where you see the amount of Jews actually that are dentists and it's just uh, an admission that there's a certain element of sadism inherent in it? What do you guys think? Um, I've never had the uh, stereotypical apprehension of the dentist that seems to be what most people are supposed to have. I always view them as... uh, mechanics for my mouth and I had uh, no qualms about it. Um, you know, if I did have a problem, I'd actually want them to fix it sooner rather than later. Uh, but I do appreciate the, the gross factor and I didn't, I wouldn't want to be it, uh, as a, as a professional. I mean, looking in other people's mouths has got to be way worse than in my opinion, than having somebody work on me. That's how I've always felt. But are, you, are the movie, you're, are you you're talking about the one where Dustin Hoffman is like drilled into in like Manhattan or something? I, I think I might've seen this. Um, where there's this yeah, that, sadistic doctor, the dentist is like a German guy. He's supposed to be like an escaped criminal and, uh, and he takes, takes it upon Dustin Hoffman to torture him kind of thing. 
Yeah. And that's a that's a famous trope. It's, there's a peculiarity, if I remember correctly, to uh, American dentistry. American dentistry is a, is a product of, uh, of Massachusetts. So it is, uh, if, if there's an element of it that feels... Um, uh, oh, no. Has, a, has an element of schadenfreude, perhaps, or an element of, of uh, salvation through pain, salvation through suffering... Um, uh, to to make oneself mechanically more pure through immense pain, um, it, it does make sense that it has its origins in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Um, if I remember correctly, the man or the family—I uh, can't remember their their surname—but there was a basically a specific family out of Massachusetts that set the like set the standards for American dentistry, kind of like uh, the role that um, uh, Benjamin Rush played with American surgeons and, and a couple other roles of American um, medicine and, and more physical medicine. Um, uh, Dr. Benjamin Rush is one of the one of the founding fathers. I mean, he was this influential figure in modern America. There was a similar man uh, who was basically just like America's dentist. And uh, I can't, I cannot recall his name off the top of my head, but he had a bunch of kids and they all became dentists. And then all of their children became dentists. And so there's basically a, a, there could still be a family line of dentists that have percolated and spread into other family lines. And it is possible that some large percentage of the dentists in America are traced back to one man from the Massachusetts Bay family that believed it was a holy mission to engage in dentistry. So are you saying that like messianic Protestants from New England who practiced dentistry and set up an intergenerational family line went on to mingle with Jewish huckster immigrants from the 20th century to create uh, the sadism complex known as dentistry. Yes, I am this saying sounds, that. It's like a very it, American story. This it's, it myth, sounds a lot the, like the myth the of dentistry. Of very psych, good. It sounds a lot like the origins of psychiatry when you really think about it as well. Very similar origins there. But yeah. Well, the there, important a, thing dear listener is to remember to floss and brush your teeth because you don't want to participate in the sadism graft racket. Well, I know some people in our circle. Also, uh, remember what happened well, to Clive Barker too. When I found out about this, I didn't typically have a strong fear of the dentist or anything like this, but when I found out what happened to Clive Barker, I, I can't help but think about that every time I go to get my teeth cleaned. Well, Which, I know by the way, I guess are... if you don't know, Cl- Clyde Barker uh, became paralyzed due to a dental procedure. There, there are a lot of people in our scene who uh, who have some esoteric dentistry practices. Some of which uh, are actually probably worthwhile. Um, one of the ones I've heard of is the the oil pulling uh, helps with your gum health. Um, 
there's all kinds of other tricks uh, using baking soda instead of uh, any kind of modern toothpaste. There's a lot of chemicals, and especially the the bargain brand or or store brand um, toothpaste that are extreme, just really not good for you. Um, and they're especially not good for children because children, you know, in, incidentally will swallow some percentage of their toothpaste. It's just it's just gonna happen. Um, but I, I know, like, there's a, I think it might be uh, our old friend Rudy who had some very, very uh, arcane wisdom some, for some reason on, uh, on the subject of dentistry and on, on the subject of teeth care. And he has, apparent, he apparently has immaculate teeth because he's discovered some ancient wisdom and how to maintain his, his, uh, his teeth. Well, don't eat sugar. That's the simplest one, but that's not super practical yeah. these days. Although, well, it's not the sugar as much. It's it's like the chemicals in, in certain foods, and it's really um, like the carbonated drinks and and alcohol, I think, and drugs. But it's really those two which are like the primary killers of teeth. Like eating a pastry every day or eating a donut every day is not going to be that bad for your teeth. Having like a Diet Coke once or twice a day, along with alcohol frequently, your teeth are fried. Like by age 35, most of them are going to be replaced. I know several people who are in their 30s and have had most of their teeth replaced at this point, just because the last few decades have just been a bonanza of sugar in the food um, they've had to get. I mean, fillings are, are one thing, but getting whole, like half your jawline replaced is, uh, is something that used to be reserved strictly for old people. But now you have people, you know, way before the age of 40 with a lot of fake teeth. It's very peculiar. They end up looking like that nigga in the James Bond movie. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the, the, the mute, mute guy with steel teeth. Isn't that guy played by Andre? Yeah, that one. Is I he? Don't I don't think so. Maybe I have that wrong. He was tall. That's about it. So, are we talking about uh, current events tonight, Mr. Uh, Adam? Yeah, so... I guess so. I, I had a few things. Um, I'm sure everybody's sick of this, and so are we, but unfortunately, you can't get away from it. Uh, the vaccination drives just don't seem to uh go away uh they're they're on youtube now like they're they're giving it away they're giving giving us treats like uh fenced in cattle uh to get these things i've heard of uh, monetary rewards for the first time ever being given out for people to get stabbed in the arm uh and i know people who by virtue of the type of job they have are are basically being forced into getting the vaccination. Uh, And then we've also seen the two big public figureheads, uh, Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, respectively, seemingly take a, uh, a stumble off the stage and into the dustbin. I got to wonder with the, with the coincidence of that, is there something else at play here? Is this uh, is this intentional? These are questions I have and things I've noticed. Well, I think there's several states that are what, doing the, the two uh, the two Gentile fall guys are getting the uh, 
the proverbial cane. Yeah, well, there's 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 several states that are doing um, lotteries, kind of like you were saying. There's monetary rewards. So I think I heard Ohio, West Virginia, Arkansas, a couple states are doing these multi-million-dollar uh, rewards. It is very peculiar. I think the governor of Ohio or the governor of West Virginia, he had this totally bizarre press conference where he's like, let's make some West Virginians millionaires. It's like, why don't you just do that without the, without the vaccine? Like, if you have money to spare, yeah. why don't you give that to the people of your state? Like, what do you, what, what's going on here? You just have millions of dollars lying around for a, a raffle? Yeah, how about you this fix the roads? Totally bizarre. Yeah, like the infrastructure in West Virginia is completely horrid. And all they do is bitch and complain about how, like, they don't get enough money into the state, which, I mean, it's partially true, to fix a lot of the, you know, endemic problems. Well, apparently, you just have millions and millions of dollars lying around, not just for this advertising campaign, but to just give away randomly to random people who may or may not be from West Virginia, as long as they get their vaccination in West Virginia. It totally just... It's just like insanity, and I think that uh, the, the federal government was trying to do some kind of um, rewards program with, um, with I don't know, like a Budweiser, so you could get a free beer, one beer, one can of beer or something, or one glass of beer if you get a experimental gene therapy. God, they they, they must to- really think everybody is just Homer Simpson at home. I mean, it, it's just appalling how bad this has gotten. I, I also wonder uh, how much of like this uh, Biden administration cash handout for doing nothing. I mean, there's literally shortages going on. Uh, sawmills can't hire enough people uh, and the lumber prices have tripled, if not more. Uh, and they can't even get people to come in because they get paid more by the government to sit on their rear end and do nothing. And I call this the, uh, the Washington to consumer to Amazon to China pipeline where nothing is produced uh, in the first three parts of that. And then China builds it, ships it 7,000 miles across the ocean, gets trucked or transported over a rail to wherever it goes into some Walmart. Uh, The Walmart people show up in their uh, powered carts they throw it in their Japanese vehicle. They drive off in Saudi oil back to their house to watch television. Uh, they they throw they throw away the packaging. The packaging goes into the recycle bin, and then because China no longer uh, will take our plastic that they were marginally making money on until recently, they've realized it's also a scam. They no longer take our plastic. That plastic that's in the recycle bin goes into the landfill, and so this country is literally paying people to throw things away on a continuous basis, do nothing, watch Netflix. This is not sustainable, people. This is absolutely well, not of, sustainable. And, and the whole thing is basically permeated by a, a, a fear of a virus over a year and a half in. And it, it, it's, it's totally perplexing. Like it, it is, it's, it doesn't make any sense at this point. 
I think on some someone had an adage last year, and it was being tossed around by a lot of like sort of leftoid loser types. But it was there's a kernel of truth to it, and they're like there was no lockdown. It was just marginally middle class or rich people having stuff delivered to them by poor people, and that's basically what happened for a few months. But now there's an attempt to basically sustain that forever. And I think they're going to try and make it worse for some reason by creating not just you know raw material shortages or processed goods shortages, but labor shortages by effectively paying people to just stay at home and do nothing. Like if you work a menial service Wait, job, where's this free money? I, what what is this free money you're talking about? Well, none of us are going to get it. We don't. None of us free money. None of us really qualify for that, as far as I know. I haven't really. Got I mean, any. there was there was there was some free money being handed out at the end, at tail end of the orange years, and then under under the new Bidenist era, uh, people got a check for what like six hundred dollars or something. Well, there's and there's, I guess there's like some a... places people are getting more unemployment than normal. But what's what's uh, what's all this? There's like payment protection program, there's unemployment, there's some weird stimulus check that Biden sent out, which I I don't even know if I got, I don't think I did. Uh, I didn't, I didn't didn't sign up for it, but um, who knows? You have to know how to work the system basically. And there's, there's like a grift uh, mill that you, you know, you're, uh, you're. It's just uh, America as you. Yeah, you got to know the social worker. You got to know the the office to go to. I mean, these are things that people who with an honest work ethic have no idea how to do. Um, And those people are dwindling. But uh, I think that that was the beauty of of the of the orange check, because basically Trump just said, like, I think they probably looked at this like, well, how do I construct like this? Uh, a spin up bureaucracy to properly administer only stimulus to people that really need it. And then he probably looked at it for five minutes and said, um, that's never going to fucking work. <laughs> so why don't I just write a check to literally everyone in the country? And I'm going to tell the commercial banking sector, you have 48 hours to distribute this money to well, everyone's account right. based on previous year's tax return. Right. I mean, and you know. it, it was just a flat payment. And well, for the record, I just, I just want to say I am 100% for free money from Uncle Sam. Uh, not the least, which because who doesn't like free money? But I also like the idea of the American people getting a taste of what major defense contractors and hostile foreign states and uh, bankers, international pedophiles, and criminals, and dope kingpins uh, all get when America is business as usual. I think that the normal person should should get a taste for this and start to demand more. Because you know, this, if America this is, is just a looting frenzy, then... Well, this is the first time in, like, decades that the average American has received the same treatment that effectively the CIA has. The government just writes a blank check and says, cash this. 
and it uh, goes towards whatever you want. Whatever you want to do with that check, whatever you want to do with this. Oh, we didn't get that much, but that would be a, that would be a step up. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, you mentioned work ethic. I mean... The number of people I saw who were like... The only people who still have that are the people who aren't cashing in. Well, the number of people I saw who were were saying, like, I'm gonna... uh, I'm gonna give my stimulus money from from Trump, from Trump, to to Planned Parenthood as 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 a donation to spite Republicans. Okay. Supreme gesture (laughs) of being being among the privileged classes. Yeah, you know, gonna throw away this money to own the working class. Gotcha. Cool. Cool story, guy. Kill babies and own the working class, all in the day for a libtard. Yeah, like the 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 social reaction to the stimulus has been fascinating. It really shows you what an awful country this is and how, how bad it's gotten and how terrible most of the people are. This is, I mean, if they're not spending it on fast food or they're not donating it to, you know, Baby Killers Incorporated, um, they're just going to spend it on Amazon Prime products. It, it, the whole thing is very, very bizarre. Uh, I applaud Trump for accidentally using the virus to showcase how shallow the country really is. Um, but Adam, you mentioned Fauci and Gates, and Nick said they're the two fall goys. Um, I think that about sums them up. Gates is a, uh, an arrogant computer salesman, and Fauci's a, a paid fall guy. He's been the fall guy for 35 years. Well, yeah, he so was I involved think- with uh, the AIDS epidemic campaign at least specifically Um, specifically he was involved with the azt phenomena which was like real uh execution for for the gays um somehow he's actually like being canceled for that now like the gay act the the uh the gay activist scene has resurrected their 30 year old um signs and and slogans about Fauci murdering uh, my poor bathhouse attendees. And uh, AZT has shown up in the news for the first time in like three decades. It's totally bizarre. Like they're trying to think of a way to, to cancel the man. They're not going to talk about all the shenanigans the last 18 months with him. But we can talk about this thirty-year-old issue because it. Well, the, but the gays, the gays are a protected class, class and right, right, right. They yeah. they can do no wrong. So that's pretty uh, pretty simplistic propaganda. But apparently, it, it sort of still works. I mean, look, they're going to do what they want. Uh, really, what I'm curious about is why uh, and what's next. Um, well, I think that what they're building to is clearly some kind of like actually China did do it sort of narrative. And I think that uh, they're also building to... They've basically gone there already. Yeah, they've basically gone there. And I think that they're also building to um, actually the vaccination program 
and the you know complete incompetence surrounding how do how they handled the virus was due to um to white male greed and i th i think they're going to try and and kill two birds with one stone here they're going to try and blame the chinese for the whole thing say in my commentary on the plague the conservatives are in a difficult position here because on the one hand you have like the plague is fake but also china is responsible and that's not to say i, I think that it was i mean i've never cared about the plague from a personal perspective i was never worried about this and if it was so bad you know i i didn't i've seen bodies in the streets i'm gonna read this i don't really care at this point it's really a moot point because the issue is not the the plague politics surrounding it, this whole thing. It's it's best probably to treat it as fake issue, but uh, you're always going to have to have your talking points. And at least the conservative I interacted with, they tend to tend to be torn on this. Is it to be blamed on the Chinese or is it fake? What which is it? Yeah, and I think that that um for the record, my position is it's fake and you should blame the Jews. Yeah, I, I think that not only will the Chinese be blamed, but my contention is that they're they're at least entertaining um throwing not just Fauci, but there's this whole network of people around him that were involved with this that have varying degrees of, of blame. And there's one individual um, who went, his surname is Anderson. So he's one of these, like, I think epidemiologists or virologists, he's, he's a stooge. Um, and a, he's also an idiot who like tweets hundreds of times a day uh, for the last 18 months, his entire uh, every single like stream of consciousness that comes to his head about whatever. Um, but then he gets brought up in the emails as having, I think, when I say emails, these are these um, emails that are from the NIH that have been released through a FOIA request for, by BuzzFeed, of all people, which is very bizarre. Um, but this clown shows up in the emails back in February of last year, entertaining the idea and sending a, a paper, uh, a PDF to Fauci, although we don't have access to the PDF, we just know the title of the PDF and that he sent one. Uh, he clearly believed that, or was trying to run with this line of, um, it seems like it's engineered, and here are the reasons why. And then... This is a private email, but then for the last year and a half, this man has been publicly saying there's no evidence of that. It's totally racist to say that. There's no evidence. By the way, you should get vaccinated. By the way, you should always wear your mask. You know, by the like, by the way, by the way, by the way. This dude gets exposed as basically just doing something. I don't know what he's doing. And he completely deletes his entire social media history, not just on Twitter, but across the board. This man vanishes off the internet in the space of an hour. And it was totally bizarre. I don't know 
why this guy is suddenly so spooked. I I wonder how many more guys like him out there uh, who called this early on or were maybe ahead of ahead of the proper messaging early on and are now being exposed as basically sort of stooges. They get told what to say. And I think that that's what this is going to build towards with Fauci, is this man is basically just told what to say. We don't really know who tells him what to say, but someone just tells this guy what to go out and say on any given basis. That's why he just kind of makes stuff up. Did you guys read the uh, article, the Ron Unz article on? Yeah. He did a couple, I guess, but uh, the most recent one on the origins of the plague. They're all the same. You read I, I read some read? of the older stuff. Um, I don't remember all the details, but it, it seemed uh, in his typical Ron Unz fashion that he put lots and lots of detail uh, and arrived at a conclusion that, I don't know, to me just seemed like a possibility, but it's like, well, if you just found some uh, equally lengthy evidence to pin it on somebody else, you probably could just make the same case for them without the context of the other alternative hypothesis. I wasn't necessarily persuaded his was dominant over all others. Uh, I, I still don't know what the hell, you know causes my my gut instinct my just from listening yeah, I, to metadata analysis is that what happened was the chinese with help from guys like fauci and other americans that couldn't get congressional approval for the research in the united states were actually trying to figure out a vaccine for a sars virus and that thing got leaked whether it was intentional whether somebody did it to uh make the Chinese look bad or the Chinese were doing it intentionally. I don't know, but I think that's why that type of stuff was going on in Wuhan. I think they're basically trying to figure out a way to create some kind of defense against SARS. And then they, they fucked up one way or another and it, it got out of the lab. Um, that's my, that's my basic take, but I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like a very strong weapon. I mean, if it's an actual weapon, it's like, it hasn't killed anybody. Yeah. You know? that, that's I, the problem with, you know, the weapon theory. I think. Well, that's 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 the problem. One of the problems with the ends piece is that he starts from the premise that it's been an effective bioweapon, essentially, or that it's caused a lot of damage, and damage it has caused. At least the reaction to this as a worldwide phenomenon. Well, economically, it's politically, it's serious been a disaster. To lives the yes. world over. It is. A, if I recall, he does suggest that point that it's like. That the idea of a bioweapon is not necessarily to cause fatalities, but basically what you're seeing. I don't really know. It's definitely above my pay grade uh, as far as being able to analyze it. However, I will say and give some credit to Ronan's that he at least he at least does what you won't see anyone in the in the system media do which is even consider the possibility that it's the United States government and its various apparatuses that are responsible for it. That's well, that obviously a question any sane person would be asking if they wanted to get to the bottom of it. That was the Chinese thesis, was that it, it came out of Fort Hood or Fort Detrick, one of those two. I think it was Fort Dietrich, and like someone was trying to tie. Yeah, it Fort, Fort yeah it's, it's Dietrich. Fort Hood was where Dietrich that Muslim guy shot up a bunch of guys in Texas. Yeah. Right. 
Well, Fort Hood is the one that Whitney Webb always writes about that has like occult murders and like, like gun smuggling and a bunch of other crazy shit. But uh, I think uh, Fort Detrick, and then there was the, I think Runs talked about this too. There was a, in 2019, there were a series of, of respiratory infections or problems or deaths surrounding Fort Detrick, and they attributed it to the vaping. Like a like vaping was killing people, or something like that it was very bizarre. Uh, and so the theory there, I don't know if I ascribe to this, but it's an interesting theory in that um, the U.S. government screwed up. And this is where they were doing the research. This is where guys like Barrick and Dazak and all these other sort of um, beady-eyed freaks were were working. And they accidentally did this or that, and this is where it started. And then it somehow made its way to China and made its way back to the U.S. But the, the, the chronology on, on COVID is so unclear, and it doesn't make any sense half the time. And I think, I don't know if that's by design, because uh, if you recall, they were finding, they, they've gone back and done retroactive studies on the Italian sewer system samples. They found samples of it in people's shit from October of 2019. So no one really knows if the testing is inaccurate, which would then raise a lot of other questions, or if this thing has been percolating for a long time, what this really is. Is it even a weapon? Was it just a, a, a bad, bad gain-of-function research project that was, I mean, marginally gave you bad symptoms, but if you were a young, healthy person, it wasn't going to melt your lungs or anything like that. I don't know. The, the, the chronology on it was always the most difficult part to pin down. And the fact that no one in the system media will even talk about the chronology of where this thing really started tells you that they either haven't been giving their talking points yet on what the chronology is, or there's something that they don't want to discuss. There's something about the order of events that, I mean, that begets another question. No one really. So, what would possible you that it was Aryan scientists underneath the hollow earth that were preparing some kind of bioweapon to accelerate the collapse of the Jewish world capitalist order? But I don't know. Well, Again, to transition to transition. All I know is that. Like, this has been two years of nonstop fucking gay propaganda bullshit and social engineering. And it's really gotten to people. And as far as issues that have become political in terms of world events or something, I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, this is really it, man. You're seeing it. How far some people's minds are really gone. And I'm actually kind of grateful for that because it's it's helped, you know, clear up some stuff that would have come out one way or the other as far as the people around you, but Jesus Christ. Well, to transition into one of, I think, Adam's other topics, um, but there was this line of thinking, I don't know, early on in the crisis, weren't they claiming that white supremacists were plotting to spread the virus in black neighborhoods or something? Uh, like I that? don't They had all these theories that... that like, but the, the, yeah, they had, they had these weird, they had these weird theories that were saying, were like white, 
like white nationalists are going to try and infect black people <laughs> or something. It was like totally bizarre. And I think it might've been one of those instances where a meme thread on poll gets turned into a national news story just because, you know, no one has a sense of humor anymore. I don't know, but it was, it was the whole content, thing was very peculiar. Huh? Um, but to transition to something else, Adam, I think wanted to talk about was this, uh, this, this, white terrorism bit that they're that they're doing now as they transition away from the from the virus they want to talk about white terrorism well yeah we've been seeing it from uh i think it's like the attorney general i i don't know all these like government figureheads that have ostensible roles to play they all just seem like they're in the same evil club uh, designed to uh, hurt their own citizens um but one of these uh one of these stooges got up on uh you know the the dais and started complaining about uh you know white nationalists are the greatest threat to the country um since world war Two, or I, I don't know you just you know they, they make these hyperbolic statements all the time um for whatever agenda they they need to work on. And it just reminds me of, um, well, um, obviously nine 11 has some similarities, you know, we're the Muslims now kind of thing. Um, but it also has some similarities to the nineties when they were, uh, running, uh, Pat con in Oklahoma city and talking about the militia movements. And they've recently been running articles as well about how all these horrible, uh, horrible white people are moving to the uh, Intermountain West to basically get away from the uh, immigration and forced diversity uh, that's been wrought upon their neighborhoods uh, and isolating that as the next target. And so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big, uh, big fan of the work of a blogger by the name of uh, band hipster. And uh, he is, uh, he's a very articulate uh spokesperson for the the likely uh, real causes of 9-11 not being the obvious uh, official narrative. I'll leave it at that. And I'm sure at this point you've heard our theories on this. Um, his aren't much different. But basically the uh, prediction from him is that there very well may be another false flag uh, on the horizon. Uh, with the obvious uh, goal of pinning the blame on the target uh, by basically making them uh, look like the perpetrator of a great crime that will then justify the the feds to stomp down on them further. And many have speculated that uh, Oklahoma City was part of that attempt to stamp out the militia movement. Um, so if they're running articles about these parts of the country where, you know, they've talked about breaking away from this horrible uh, empire called the United States. Um, it would make a lot of sense that they want to make them the, the victim of the 15 minutes of hate for all the, uh, all the plebs out there that watch uh, the system media. So that's his sort of fear. I share it. Um, I would not be shocked by it. And one more thing they've, They've been running this story about this Tulsa massacre, hundred year anniversary. I'd never heard of this thing. Uh, Z man did a podcast about some of it. Uh, he kind of debunked it. I, I haven't looked into it. it. It sounded like basically just another attempt to smear 
uh, smear whites with blood libel. Uh, but uh, this is a pattern that I'm noticing. Um, well, you know, a very, a very specific kind of white. It's not just about smearing whites. It's about smearing whites in, in, in the hinterland, in the heartland, and in Oklahoma, which is sort of you know regarded as one of these kind of you know remaining white bastions in America. It's interesting. Um, I had I had heard of this a few years ago, but it was like an obscure history topic. And I had never, I can't recall learning it in school. Maybe I did. I don't think it ever really sunk in. I don't think anyone ever really cared to talk about it that much. Part of why I think that is, is that by most uh, of the stand, there's like, there's three or four primary principles of archaeological research. Uh, And the audience can look these up. I can't remember what they are off the top of my head. But by all of those standards, this this doesn't make any sense. There is no archaeological or historical basis for any of this. There's none. In fact, it doesn't even show up until the 1970s as being as any part of history. It, and it makes zero sense. It makes zero sense, especially because if you read the history of any state in the antebellum South, or even Tennessee, or even places like Ohio, it is chock full of instances from before the Civil War, post-Civil War, post-Reconstruction, in the 20th century of all kinds of racial violence back and forth, black against white, white against black, everything. This it doesn't show up in almost any history of the state of Oklahoma until the 70s, 50 years after the fact. It just pops in. And at the time, it, the death count was way lower. In fact, it wasn't even clear what the real death count was. There were three or four different versions of the story. And there were only a few grainy photographs of a piece of the city to corroborate some of the context, but there's no real historical context to any of this. The archaeological standards that they're using now to literally just dig up random grave sites and say this is evidence of a mass grave, this person was definitely killed in the Oklahoma race riot or in the Tulsa race riot, meets just no well, archaeological standards. Facts and uh, evidence have never gotten in the way of the Jewish media discovering a mass grave. I mean, just ask the Serbs about this. Right. And I think that um, it does have a lot of those qualities, you're right, of, of, of the Balkan Wars, where suddenly the death count would get inflated by a factor of two, then four, then ten, and suddenly there's mass graves everywhere, and, you know, oh my God, how could this happen? And and then it's Newsweek covers and Time magazine covers, and we're you know flying F-16s over Belgrade the next week. I mean, that's kind of the same progression here. The death count keeps going up. The 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 horrific um, uh, embellishments of little intricate storylines. There's no historical basis for any of this, but we're we're, we're like adding all this detail to an event hundred years ago. 
we can't possibly know just to really jerk your tears. It's it's very creepy. It has it has like like this this combined with the white terror stuff and the new patcon stuff has very 90s vibes to it. It feels like the US government it turns out that has, has run out of enemies. The real war crimes were the friends we made along the way. Well, the U.S. government has run out of real enemies like they did in the 90s. Or en- there's, there's enemies they don't want to pursue. So they look inward. Or they look at enemies that are kind of helpless and, and can't fight back. So in the 90s, it was, you know, um, uh, you know, gun nuts was how they used to call them. And, and radical Christians, homeschoolers, those kind of types, right? And uh, and externally, it was um, a place like post-communist Serbia, which has no means of really fighting the United States. And they're doing the same thing here, except in both cases, is it's internal. They're trying. They're basically, you know, utilizing the full weight of the academic establishment and the media establishment against a a region of rural white people who have little to no experience dealing with this sort of threat like the you know the average oklahoman i guarantee you has absolutely no clue how to counter this sort of thing but you have hundreds of of academic you know sort of fake archaeologists and media apparatchiks who've descended on you and basically constructed this whole um fake dig site to pin a crime on your on your grandfather it's a it's a very peculiar um campaign that they're that they're embarking on it's also really bizarre that it comes on the heels of there was a supreme court decision um last year and i can't remember the technicals of it but basically uh in the majority opinion it found that uh uh, technically, half of the state of Oklahoma is, 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 should be or is theoretically an Indian reservation due to some arcane agreement that the U.S. government may or may not have made with, an, with the Indian tribes in the, in the 19th century. So you have this one-two punch to this, you know, this kind of stalwart state of, of you know, white rural stock. First, actually, half your land belongs to uh, the Indians. Secondly, you are guilty of this immense blood libel that you covered up, and we are going to unearth it from a hundred years ago. Yeah, I mean, I don't know um, how far will this go. I don't know. Uh, you know, we're we're just looking in from the outside, but. Um, just be prepared to continue to watch your back and be very careful what you say to the wrong people who will use it as an excuse to prosecute you. Basically, uh, we are living in a tell on your neighbor uh, society with this, uh, you know, we've that's been revealed very obviously with the mask mandates and uh, soon to be vaccine mandates with people ratting each other out, um, notifying the police. I mean, the, the 
thank goodness for once that we're not in Canada or the UK or the broader Commonwealth. Have you guys seen some of the footage of what's been going on with people uh, up and around there? Um, they have uh, they have had police officers yeah. break up uh, church gatherings. They've gone into uh, like funeral homes. Um, they've kicked people out of their own homes for having too many people over at once. Uh, dragging them out into the street. Uh, it's it's really Orwellian stuff. Uh, you know, in America, we have the, the pretense of a brave new world order, but they've got uh, the boot stamping on their on their necks, quite literally, uh, outside of the United States. Well, there's... I was chatting about this with some people. A dude, though, who keeps trying to talk to you, who hangs out under the bridge who's always always trying to talk to you about building explosives, you probably shouldn't hang out with that guy. <laughs> yeah, general good advice. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Anyways, uh, I was chatting about this with some people the other day um, on the Canadian subject, and I didn't realize how dystopian it really is in Canada. Um, We've talked about Canada numerous times on the show. Um, frankly, you know, uh, I think we should have carried through with our plans in the 1920s to mustard gas the whole country. Um, that probably would have at least saved them much of this suffering. Uh, but one of the interesting things about Canada now is that technically... Uh, you are not allowed necessarily free travel between the provinces of Canada. I didn't realize that uh, that this was a thing, but uh, and apparently it's, it's some kind of legal gray zone on purpose because it allows the Canadian authorities to sort of interpret on a whim whether or not they can, they should, or they want to uh, exact some kind of um, punitive measure towards you, or force you to do something, or force you to to go along with whatever they want. Um, so as an example of this, I looked at uh, each, each province of Canada, and for those who are very not in the know, the provinces of Canada are effectively the states of Canada. So Manitoba, Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, Quebec, British Columbia, Toronto, or I'm sorry, Ontario. But, you know, some will say Toronto's, it's basically its own thing, but Ontario and, and, and Alberta and so forth. Um, and so in Manitoba, which is probably one of the most rural regions broadly of Canada, it's, uh, it's one of the provinces that's kind of been left behind. Um, you can equate it with maybe Montana or uh, or uh, North Dakota, something like that. That's the kind of uh, hold it has into into Canada. Um, in Ma in Manitoba, you there there is a Canadian website for each province on the rules you need to conduct yourself in if you want to leave your home. This is not just for general life stuff. This is to leave your home. So, for example, there's a common thing in Manitoba where many people who live in the province own a second home or own um, a cabin further north. 
there's also a lot of people who own cabins or, or second homes or third homes in Manitoba who are from other provinces. But if you live in Manitoba, if you are, you are, you are a provincial resident of Manitoba, and you want to go to your cottage up north, technically, the Canadian government has explicitly said that you are not advised to do so. And then there is a list of required procedures if you want to engage in this behavior. The Canadian government demands that you not stop for gas. The Canadian government demands that you not stop to see anyone along the way. The Canadian government demands that only you and your immediate family stay at the cabin. The Canadian government demands that you and you and your family are not allowed to see anyone else in the region that you are going to. Uh, that you are not, not allowed to uh, patronize the local restaurants or shops. You, are not, you should not go to the grocery store. This is all written in plain English on an official government website. It's basically telling you, uh, if you are going to leave your home, don't do anything. You can only go to and from places of residence. Said, well, what happens in Canada if you're homeless? Or are you do if you don't have a home? You see, I think, uh, from my understanding, at least, uh, I've looked into this. There's, I guess, a massive homeless problem in places like Vancouver. Yeah, it's like um, one of the few warm places in Canada, major yeah. cities at least. And the, the homeless crisis has hit, you know, sort of San Francisco epidemic level, arguably worse. Um, and what's very peculiar is that the Canadian government is extremely authoritarian and overbearing um, towards the normal people of Canada. But the homeless population is basically given free reign over the cities of Canada and are allowed to conduct themselves in whatever way they see fit. So you have just hordes of homeless people. And you can find footage of this online very easily. Uh, hordes of homeless people in, in places like Vancouver uh, all of last year and this year too, um, high out of their minds, attacking people, sitting on the streets, hanging out with other homeless people. They've effectively taken over much of the public transportation. It's much like the American city experience, which has the same dynamic in that the homeless are not held to that kind of standard of you need to do this, this, and this. You need to try and behave yourself during the, the pandemic, whatever. In Canada, it's that same dynamic, but the Canadian government is infinitely you know, more annoying and more, I would say, aggressive towards the non-homeless population than the American government. Uh, and if you travel between regions in Canada, it's apparently not, it's, like I said, it's in, the, it's in some kind of legal gray zone where it's not necessarily clear immediately what exactly you need to do to travel between regions, or I'm sorry, between provinces. It's explicitly not advised. Most of the inter-province or intra-province uh, airlines, ferries, and so forth have been shut down for the most of the last year and a half, or they have been um, severely impacted, or they don't, they don't run very often. Um, they've basically forced Canadians mostly, if they want to go from province to province, to uh, utilize their own car. But if you do so, you are very liable to be stopped at the border with another province. 
and forced to quarantine, isolate, take a test, all at your own expense. The Canadian government will not cover any of that. So they've basically made it so that you cannot travel between provinces very easily. It's, it's an extremely insane situation. Uh, and as Adam said, they like dragged people out of churches. They've randomly pulled people over on the highway and arrested them for not wearing a mask. And it's a, it's a very dystopian and strange country. I, I really don't understand. Um, Wait, you're, you're expected to uh, wear this mask driving in your car. Is that correct? Yeah, apparently, I guess in on in Ontario or at least in in the city of Toronto, you are expected to wear a mask at all times outside your own home. I don't I don't really understand the logic of that, but there have been people who've been pulled over explicitly for that purpose. So it's a very strange circumstance there. So the only other thing I had was uh it might be calm down by now but uh, last week at least it was still going on the middle eastern kerfuffles um i mean you know it's a broken record but uh with i think i i I have a few theories maybe i should just stick with the facts at the beginning at least but so what's happened was there was uh, a couple of flashpoints there obviously was yet another sparking of tensions between the Israelis and Palestinians. There were some rockets fired. The Israelis retaliated. Um, the world, you know, slacker, slacktivist hacked uh, on uh, Facebook. You mean some bombs were set up and the Palestinians retaliated? Yeah, I don't know. Just many Palestinian flags on the Facebook uh, avatar pictures. And uh, the Israelis are strangely becoming the uh the boogeyman of the media for a brief moment uh until the uh owners of those media companies of course can reassert the narrative um but that seemed to be an interesting twist uh my theory was that it's a possibility with uh trump out who at this point i think should be clear to most people who look at this uh slightly more than uh uh with a cursory grant a glance but with a, a somewhat uh, intent glance should notice that Trump was pretty hooked up with uh, the Likud party in, in Israel and Netanyahu. And so with Biden in there, uh, maybe they, they just got some uh, different uh, uh, hat wearing people, allies that don't like Netanyahu. And so one of my theories is that uh, they're using this opportunity to try to discredit him and get him out and get uh, their, uh, their guy in there. I don't know. I don't really care. Honestly, I'm tired of it all. Um, and then very briefly, the other flashpoint was the Iranians, um, losing a, a fairly large naval vessel, uh, to, uh, ostensibly an internal fire. Uh, but historically there have been uh, a lot of, um, a lot of attacks on their vessels, um, in the Persian Gulf and, uh, there have also been a lot of, uh, sanctions obviously been placed on Iran over the past 10 plus years by the United States and, uh, Indonesia, uh, recently released a, a seized Iranian tanker, uh, that they captured, um, back in January, uh, for probably basically just trying to sell some oil to China. Uh, but I guess they got pressured into, 
uh, seizing this thing by the U.S. Uh, because Iran is under sanction. Uh, so they, they let that one go. Uh, but the Iranians are under a lot of pressure too. So that was the other thing that caught my eye. Inshallah. Yeah, the um, I don't even really know the Byzantine nature of uh, of Israeli politics that I think is motivating some of this. My understanding is that uh, I think you pointed this out. Netanyahu is basically kind of on his last leg politically, and there's a wide array of Israeli political parties that have sort of tried to come together across various interests to boot him out. Uh, I feel like this is uh, maybe you know Netanyahu, who's always just been a tool of of Mossad in the IDF. In fact, he he's one of them. I feel like. He is ready to fulfill his role permanently as fall guy for whatever the real Israeli establishment wants to do. And they can kind of pin this recent round of violence on him. And they can say, ah, you see, that was Netanyahu and his and his corrupt leadership in in the Likud party. And, uh, you know, that's why the violence got so out of hand. But, and you know, we're going to get rid of him and we're going to clean up the Israeli political scene and everything will be fine. And then I think that they hope people develop a sense of amnesia along with media manipulation and three or four years, five years down the line, a new campaign starts. And you have to see what's going on with the Israelis as, as a kind of slow burn. They know they can't necessarily get away with now kind of, um, what do you want to call it, a blitzkrieg? Some kind of all-out assault where they you know, decimate Gaza, they completely destroy the Palestinians, they force them either into death or into, into leaving into Jordan or into Lebanon. Um, I think that they know they can't do that. What they can do is slowly bleed them. And they can play a game of, of, of sort of frontman politics uh, indefinitely to achieve that end. So the IDF and, and Mossad can achieve their long-term goal of, you know, basically defenestrating the Palestinians uh, as long as they play this. Yeah, it's a... I... Go ahead. It's good Jew, bad Jew... You know, some yeah. the 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 Kudniks obviously play the bad Jew. It's, I mean, some some Jews want to kill their enemies. That is non-Jews uh, today and in broad daylight for the entire world to see. And others want to kill the non-Jews tomorrow and a bit more discreetly and slowly. It's that's Israeli politics as far as I can tell. I think that the, I think though that the one bright spot is that as the older generations in the West die out, like no one's buying this shit anymore. Well, that's the thing. There's an there's there's a couple of elements like that going on that have been really interesting to see. Number one, I have never seen in the last several decades of my life um, this much of a groundswell of sort of 
criticism of the Israelis, even in America, even among normal-ish people. Because for a long time, criticism of the Israelis was relegated to, like, freaks on college campus and, and like, vague left-wing types and, and, like, you know, like the WTO types. That was how it was always framed. Now, for the first time, you are seeing more broad-spectrum disapproval of this like what, what this is just so over the top and i think everyone can kind of see that the israelis clearly provoked this they clearly are trying to play some game but it is also possible that that is part of the calculus here that is they anticipated that yeah they, this, this they did deliberately the, provoke it by what they did at al-aqsa yes they did deliberately provoke it but i think that Part of the calculus here is the assumption that people will actually, in, in a broad-spectrum way, start to get angry about this. And all the more better to just pin it on Netanyahu, Likudniks, and sideline them for four or five years and yeah. kind of get away yeah. with it, effectively. Yeah. Because there's no just there's no just there's no discussion of there's no discussion of restitution for what's going on. There's only discussion of well, how do we stop the current campaign? Well, we stop the current campaign when Benjamin Netanyahu leaves office. From an American perspective, I will add that the one most interesting part about this though, this just wilding out of Jewish violence. And this is something you can point out to people too, who are like, I don't know, whatever Breitbart readers. I don't know if you hang out with Breitbart readers. I sure hope you don't. But uh, a point I, I had made is that the same people who, when some Negro criminal ends up dying in the course of Negro criminality and the entire American system media starts doing these like impromptu hagiographies and you know ritual reference of this dead Negro. The same people are the ones who are going to carry water when the Zionists just start openly bombing apartment complexes in broad daylight. It's a it's the you know here's your double standard, but. Uh, it's one that I think people should pay attention to if they are still under the delusion that uh, how things work. They don't understand. Well, I also it's, think it's pretty it's, stark and obvious. It's worth considering that there is a possibility they will stage something to drum up the necessary sympathy uh, for another campaign. And I think that there's a, a good ch- probability of that in the next one to two years. I think that they will successfully kind of um, sunset Netanyahu. But then they will, the IDF establishment, whoever that really is, uh, will realize that, okay, well, you know, we were able to accomplish most of what we needed with this operation, but, you know, we have this timetable we're trying to stick to. We need to, you know, basically have, you know, the Palestinians uh, wiped out by this period um we need to stage an attack because the the memory of the last Netanyahu campaign is still fresh we need to generate some kind of sympathy so we need to stage x y and z 
And I could easily see that happening. I could see them attempting to utilize a, a new crisis to immediately force you to forget about the Netanyahu drama in this campaign to justify another one and say, no, this is totally different. This is not a Likudniki campaign. This is a, a campaign against terrorism because there was a terror attack in Tel Aviv. That, that's going to be the new, the new tact that they're going to take. And I think that they're not going to be as direct in their provocation. They've probably now learned that the people see through the provocation, so they have to be uh, more subtle how they determine these sort of cause de jour for entering uh, into Gaza. So, Hans, you had some things you wanted to bring up. Well, we're probably never going to talk to uh, Martin Van Creveld or whatever his name is after... <laughs> After that segment, um, oh, geez. So, yeah, I had a few things to bring up. Um, one of them is uh, is technically a, a show topic that I was thinking of doing, and maybe the audience uh, are very dutiful and uh, prodigious audience will, will write and let us know what they think of this idea. Uh, I was curious in doing a show on, on uh, American dairy industry. I like dairy. I know you too like dairy. Uh, I consume quite a bit of high-quality dairy. And uh, it is something I've never really looked into. I've never really tried to determine the American dairy industry is like. Most of my my research into it has been in in my quest to understand and acquire raw milk, which is uh, actually kind of difficult depending where you're at. involves all kinds of, you know, financial trickery. You have to buy a cow share and all this sort of stuff. You can't just buy a half gallon of raw milk at the store. <laughs> you have to, you have to find a, like a network that distributes it. It's, it's, uh, it's actually insanely complicated. So I think I started by, uh, out of, out of curiosity, which was like, how did, uh, how did we get to this point where, we have this, you know, kind of immense pasteurized industry. And then I started looking more and more into just the milk industry in general. And um, I think my first sort of, uh, this is, these are recent papers. It's not too old. Um, my first foray into this was recently, and I came across this uh, USDA article uh, titled, Scale Economies Provide Advantages to Large Dairy Farms. It was published late last year. And um, uh, that looks fairly boring. (laughs) But it ended up being uh, one of the most insightful little articles I've ever read. Um, It's packed with uh, all kinds of data and graphs and figures and uh, some interest. And it's part of a larger, actually, report. Or it's actually an addendum to a larger report that they did last year called Consolidation in U.S. Dairy Farming by uh, James McDonald and, uh, and uh, Jonathan Law. And uh, it's about 60 pages. Really interesting. I don't know if the audience would really want to hear about that. But basically, um, you know, the American dairy industry was uh, sort of prototypical and idyllic of, uh, of most American life. Kind of what we talked about um, in our show on the, the Chandler book, uh, The Invisible Hand, uh, 
Um, it you know started out as small family operations and a sort of a decentralized supply chain network and distribution network. Um, most people got their dairy locally from local people they knew. Most people owned their own dairy farm or they owned a piece of a dairy farm. Or it was very common to have a, sort of like an early version of maybe like what you think of as a co-op. Um, so this this is all common across North America. It was all brought here with the uh, first English settlers. Um, if you were a uh, son of the British Isles, you most definitely have a fine appreciation for dairy, and so you'd know that it was uh, the cows were of particular importance in the in the trek over from England. And so um, it kind of started out as Actually, it went on from how it started out as this sort of small industry and more of just a general part of daily life until really the late 19th century. And this gets into a little bit of what we talked about um, uh, two, three years ago with our Progressive Era episode. Uh, really, at the end of the 19th century, you have the institutionalization of lots of um, statistical bodies, regulatory bodies, economic bodies, associate, you know, kinds of groups and associations that were going to monitor and manage different parts of life and the economy and society and so forth. Um, so you, you really had, uh, at the late part of the 19th century, from what I was able to, to grok, uh, a transition of the dairy industry into uh, into an industry that was exporting dairy from specific rural regions to cities. As the population uh, imbalance hit the United States around the year 1900, where we had a you know the 50-50 ratio, 50% lived in metropolitan areas, 50% lived outside of them, and then it continued to tilt in the other direction. Um, eventually, we had to develop this whole uh, really industry around dairy. And that's where we get the term the dairy industry because effectively we had to determine a way in which we could get dairy from 200 miles away into the heart of a city. So that's when you get pasteurization equipment, milking machines, refrigerated milk tank cars, um, automatic uh, uh bottling machines, the commercial milk bottles, you have all the standardizations and instrumentations for different parts of the dairy industry. You have all the testing that comes for cattle. You have specific breeding of specific types of cattle and cows just for certain kinds of dairy. Um, of course, the big one was pasteurization. And it was around this time that um, as we're developing all this water infrastructure in the cities, uh, there's this... Uh, there's all these endemic problems of cholera and uh, people are getting diseases. So they said from, uh, from, from raw dairy, unpasteurized dairy, everyone's getting sick from the dairy. Coincidentally, it's all these people in the cities who are living in like absolute industrial squalor and filth and are already in poor health. Um, and they get, you know, one, one glass of raw dairy and they're, they're dead or I mean it was just it was kind of like the um the health scare of its day. Like you know, now we have all this uh this this dialectic around um 
the red meat versus the impossible burger, whatever the these freaks are trying to sell us. Um, at the time, we had a similar red debate. meat versus uh, insects. Insects, you're right. Um, at the time, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, we had a similar debate around pasteurized versus raw dairy, and how we were delivering dairy to the cities, and that was when you started to see the banning and the outlawing of raw of sales of raw dairy and the mandatory institutionalization of pasteurization processes and the freezing processes and all these sorts of things, refrigeration, they all started to come into effect. I think it was in 1895, you have the Division of Agrostology and the Dairy Division was established by the Bureau of Animal Industry of the USDA. Um, and it started out very innocuously. They were able to get a lot of, a lot of buy-in from farmers um, by convincing them that uh, what we're going to do is we're going to collect information on how you do your dairy stuff. Mr. Small Dairy Farmer Johnson from uh, upstate Michigan or Mr. Anderson from, uh, from upstate New York. Uh, and we are, in fact going to take that information and we are going to use it to train other people to be dairy farmers. Um, so the farmers went, and the farmers and the early farmer lobbyists, the dairy farmers went along with this before they realized what it was really about, which was sort of creating the institutionalization of a dairy supply chain to the cities that they would have to then abide by. Um, and so the, it was really the turn of the 20th century and the first few decades of the 20th century where the dairy farmers of America effectively get like enslaved um, by just immense regulations and all kinds of things to serve the cities, serve the immigrant demand and all this sort of stuff. Um, so then you have an amendment to the Meat Inspection Act in 1906 and uh, that's when, like, the USDA goon squads start going out and enforcing uh, all these sanitation and hygiene standards on the dairy farmers out in the middle of nowhere. Some of these families, or most of these families, had been dairy farmers for 300 years in some places uh, in the United States. Uh, and yet they're, you know, being told that now they're they're unsanitary. It's not these disgusting cities without water pressure that are unsanitary. It's the milk that's unsanitary. Um, and then, you know, you really start to see with World War One and the 1920s, you have the Bureau of Dairying, which becomes the Bureau of Dairy Industry, and it has all these divisions, and then it gets abolished, and then you have the, uh, the ARS, and you have the Dairy Husbandry Research Branch, and Suddenly you have like the, the ballooning and the obfuscation of the bureaucracy, both at the federal and state level on the dairy industry. Um, and so I, you know, I didn't really know any of this, and I was also curious, who were the, the main figures um, behind this? And it was, there were three primary guys. All right, so there was a guy named Ollie, Ollie E. Reed. He was the man who, he was like the J. Edgar Hoover of uh, the dairy industry from uh, 1928 to 1953. This guy was just like chief bureaucrat. And um, 
he was the one who specifically made it his mission uh, to breed certain species or certain species, yes, yeah, certain species of dairy cow specifically for the cheese industry. So he spent like 20 odd years, uh, and this was his life mission was to just make sure that the cheese industry took off because cheese and butter, but mostly cheese was one of the most efficient ways you could have a supply chain from the rural folk to the city folk. He could get them the dairy through the cheese. Um, he had a guy named Ralph Hodgson, who was the uh, another one of these sort of arch bureaucrats at the Bureau of Dairy Industry. He was there for about a decade, and uh, he was the guy uh, who uh, basically worked to get um, make America into the global. Um, dairy exporter and the global uh, dairy experts. And uh, so this is where you start to see the powdered milk stuff and the exporting of dairy and even more standards fall on the dairy farmers and you have the first consolidations of the mega dairy farms and all this stuff. Um, and like the small farmers begin to be displaced and then you finally have... Um, this guy named Charles E. North, and uh, he was the main guy, the main guy, who uh, was in charge of getting the public to accept pasteurized milk, pasteurized milk laws. And he was, a, he was technically a physician, and he was sort of uh, recruited by a combination of the private sector and the government to federal government to make this happen, to convince the majority of Americans, the majority of dairy farmers, that uh, they needed to go along with pasteurized milk. And it wasn't until like the early 20th century that um, you could have even imagined of a world where all the milk, not just some of it, all of it, would be mandated by law as having to be pasteurized. The milk you had been enjoying for 300 years was, in fact, the wrong milk. <laughs> it, was, it was totally wrong. You need to do this whole new thing we've dreamed up. And um, the funny thing is that he, he was basically like th this voice for not just creating the standards so that if you wanted to buy a pasteurized milk, you could. Because if you're living out in the rural area, if you want to sell raw milk to another rural person, there's very little chance that in that supply chain, the milk is going to go sour. Uh, or there's going to be a, you know massive bacterial growth in the milk. Um, but because this was sort of a federal and also every state did its statewide approach, uh, it, was, it was sort of a punitive attack on the lifestyle of the American rural dairy communities and just rural communities in general who had grown accustomed to this kind of just being a part of their way of life. And now they had to follow all these standards where they could be, you know, in violation of federal law for selling their neighbor a, 
a carton or you know a a jug of uh, of of unpasteurized milk. Um, this was very Amish are still prosecuted for this. Yes. They get hit by the feds every I don't know every other year or so. Yeah, and so I started to look more into this. Um, and I don't know, you know, again, the audience should let us know if they're interested in a deeper dive on this. Uh, in this main report that I first dug up, and so like right off the bat, you know, American dairy farms cover a wide range of herd sizes from 50 cows or fewer, through mid-sized operations of three to 400 cows and up to larger operations of several thousand cows. Um, and what they found is that the larger operations now have lower production costs in total than the smaller farms because the regulatory burdens and the capital requirement burdens are so high you need and the, the cost of land is so high now and you need a certain scale of the cows to even make a profit the, you've, see, you've seen that pattern in a lot of industries i mean especially yeah. um, after the financial blow-ups of the 2000s uh, that we've all suffered through um the uh the government has come to our rescue, of course, with uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, trying to think of some of the other ones uh, during the financial crisis. Uh, Sarbanes-Oxley was the accounting one. And then um, then they had the Obama credit card protection program. What I'm getting at is there's just been mountains of red tape uh, on top of an already hyper-regulated industry, which, you know, I, I don't have any real sympathy for f the financial sector, but uh, what I'm getting at is the barriers to entry have gone up and up and up for small operations. And it gives the incumbents or at least the larger players an incredible advantage because they can afford to hire a team of a hundred compliance officers plus uh, retain 10 law firms to weed through all these, uh, these thickets of regulations. Uh, and that's really just a drop in the bucket of their operating expenses. But when you, when you are a, a three branch bank, uh, you've got maybe two lawyers. I mean, you know, you can't afford all this. Uh, and so you can't compete. And so it's basically crowded out all of the, uh, the smaller players. And, uh, I think in the cattle industry, uh, which I, I would include the dairy as well as beef operations. Um, uh, and the same thing is happening in, uh, poultry and, and, um, and pigs, uh, with, uh, operators like Tyson, uh, consolidators, basically, uh, just crushing all the independent farmers. Uh, the beef industry has been suffering. I have a statistic, uh, and this is uh, coming from a, a good interview that this uh, guy named uh, Matt Stoller, he writes about monopolies, basically. Uh, he did an interview of a uh, representative of the uh, cattle industry that has been pretty vocal about trying to break up the uh, meatpacking um, conglomerates which are acting uh, not actually as monopolies per se, but they're technically uh, considered monopsonies. The difference being that when you have um, a exclusive seller, that's called a monopoly. But when you have effectively an exclusive buyer, that's the, uh, the flip side is the monopsony. And so this is, uh, this is the case uh, effectively in America where there's only really like four um, 
meat packers left that buy in America that control some, something like more than 80% of the buy it might even be up to 90% if I recall correctly. Uh, and only two of those are American. The rest are Brazilian or at least one of them is, and there's another one. Uh, so what you're dealing with is a situation where these companies can effectively dictate through some pretty sleazy, um, strong arm tactics to force farmers into these fixed price contracts that, warp the market into their favor, into the meatpackers favor. And the evidence is pretty clear. If you look at uh, when this consolidation was happening, the price divergence between the wholesale and the retail prices of beef uh, diverged um, in the favor again of the meatpackers. And so numerically speaking, we're talking about uh, roughly a 40% decline in the the dollar that they're getting per cow uh, from the farmer point of view since 2014. And there's been a 10% increase in the retail sales. So that 50% Delta has all gone to the meat packers and the cattle farmers are, are getting stuck with, uh, uh, less and less earnings while, uh, everybody at the store is paying more for beef. Uh, and so it's a pretty crummy and, and crooked situation. Uh, and these guys actually tried to get a, um, antitrust suit filed and it, it it was dismissed on apparently some technical grounds which i'm not privy to the details of but uh, i wouldn't be surprised that there was some pretty heavy duty lobbying going on in washington uh to stop that in its in its tracks uh and so i don't know if that same situation applies in, in dairy but you know we're seeing this effectively throughout the whole country i mean it's just, uh, especially with covid consolidation of big business has continued to pace uh, in the online retailing and retail space in general. Uh, obviously, it's been the year of Amazon with uh, all these uh, small shops having to close. Uh, but, you know, you're still good to go to Walmart or a Home Depot. Uh, but, you know, the local hardware store can't do it. And of course, you can shop online. Uh, so it's just been a big win for the big guy and, and a big F you for the little guy. The year of the rent seekers. Yeah, let, yeah. Me, uh, let me blow your mind with a statistic here. Between 1992 and 2017, small commercial farms with 10 to 99 cows saw an average decline of 70%. These farms accounted for 48.5% share of all U.S. milk cows in 1992. In 2017, that number stood at just 12 So even into the 90s, nearly half of the dairy was coming from small farmers. 20 years, 30 years later now, we have a probably more like by now 10%, probably less. It's, it's insane. I had no clue it was this bad. Here's another... Um, Here's another statistic. Uh, while you know, farms with herds of at least 1,000 cows held just 17.5% of all milk cows, these numbers change sharply. Um, large dairy farms have also grown. USDA's Census of Agriculture reported data only for farms with 1,000 or more cows in 1997. By 2007, the census split the single large class into two with a threshold of 2,500 cows. The larger class, 2,500 cows or more, accounted for most of the growth in farm numbers 
cow inventories and production over 2007 and 17, and the census can consequently split the largest class again in 2017 to a threshold of 5,000 cows. The census reports that there were 189 dairy farms with at least 5,000 cows in 2017. Previous ERS research with census records identified 142 farms in 2012, 47 in 2002, and 8 in 1992. Today, the very largest U.S. dairy farms milk more than 25,000 cows and are usually organized in a series of pods, each comprised of cow barns or lots, manure storage units, feed bunkers, and milking facilities. While production is shifted from smaller herds to larger herds throughout the country, most farm closures have occurred in northeastern and midwestern dairy states, where small and mid-sized commercial dairy herds have accounted for high shares of production. Four states, Minnesota, New York, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, accounted for 60% of the country's 30,333 small commercial dairy farms in 2017. And most of the closures during 2007 to 17 happened in those states. By contrast, the four largest Western milk production states, California, Idaho, New Mexico, and Texas, accounted for less than 2% of all small commercial dairy farms. So it really is New York, New England, and the upper Midwest that for the longest time, has supplied 300-odd million people with their dairy and exports abroad. Uh, and it's, just, it's completely consolidated now. It's to the point where the small American farmer, a small American dairy farmer, literally, statistically, is at the point of not existing. <laughs> is at the point of, it's nearly at the point of statistical margin of error. Uh, the long-term shift toward larger operations reflects persistent cost differences, uh, but also reflects changes in the demand for dairy products. Consumption has shifted away from fluid milk, which is generally shipped relatively short distances for sale, and towards dairy products like cheese, yogurt, dry milk powder that can ship, be shipped long distances across the country or exported. The shift in the consumption of demand makes local production less important and tends to favor farms that are often quite large in locations far from population centers. While small commercial farms have been leaving dairy production for many years, the rate of exit rise in periods of low milk prices. During 2018, milk prices fell. An average net returns to milk production fell to a negative $3.10 per hundred weight of milk produced from negative five cents in 2017, according to the ERS milk costs and return estimates. The number of licensed dairy farms fell by 7% in 2018 alone as a wave of farm closures hit many traditional dairy states in the Northeast and Midwest. Closures continued into 2019 with the number of licensed dairy herds in Wisconsin falling by 10%. Um, and I was able to dig up some more recent articles. Um, there was one from 2021 of this year and uh, uh, in February, and it says, cites the USDA's National Agricultural Statistics Service released by its monthly milk production report. Um, and 
the premise is that the dairy is just continuing to decline, and they uh, uh, and it says, but since two thousand three, the U.S. has lost more than half of its licensed dairy operations. Now, just shy of thirty-two thousand total dairy operations left. Um, U.S. dairy farmers enter twenty twenty-one in a state of flux following the disruptions caused by COVID. And uncertainty in how new food assistance programs may impact milk and dairy commodity prices. And so that's the other thing, is that on some piece of, or some piece of this industry is basically just subsidized through the U.S. government, not just through various farm subsidies, uh, but through the EBT program. And if there's any sign of uh, flux there. Well, the larger dairy producers have the ability to withstand potentially that small loss of revenue. If you're a smaller dairy producer, that could be a killer. And so you can see that effectively the U.S. dairy industry has just been totally cleared out. And it sort of happened without anyone making a real stink of it. Um, if you look at, there's a really interesting map here. It says 2020 year-over-year change in licensed dairy operations by state. Literally every state lost. Not a single state on here gained licensed dairy operations. So you have an increasing population. Population in the United States won't stop increasing. We won't stop exporting. And every state lost dairy farms. In Minnesota alone, 2020, year over year, 380 dairy operations. Uh, Wisconsin, 610. Ohio, 195. Pennsylvania, 300. New York, 240. Iowa, 50. Missouri, 80. Maine, 20. Virginia, 30. California, 40. I mean, this is just, you know, completely unsustainable. Um, and if it wasn't for just a, you know, sort of peak curiosity on one aspect of this, I don't think I would have ever even come across this sort of research. So there's, I did find an article from Civil Eats, and it was asking uh, what's behind the dairy crisis. Um, and they, t- I guess, talked to family farmers in the Northeast. They were trying to figure out, you know, what do these people, what do they think the problem is? Um, and the first quote in the article is, uh, if a mammal doesn't produce it, it isn't milk, says Lisa Engelbert, one of the farmers at the sixth generation Engelbert Farms in Nichols, New York. Engelbert is referring somewhat warily to the plant-based beverages and other products made from soy, rice, nuts, and oats. She calls them plant juices. They currently account for 13% of the U.S. milk market. And so there's something else going on here where you have these milk alternatives that uh, are dominating certain uh, cosmopolitan areas. And so the U.S. dairy industry was forcibly shifted to participate in this sort of nearly, nearly slave status to produce milk 
and produce dairy for these, uh, these, these urban zones. And now they've been totally left aside as the sort of establishment has introduced alternatives to that. So you've basically left these people with no choice but to die out. Um, it's a very, very sort of disheartening story. It's fascinating. However, uh, if the audience is interested in it more, um, let us know. We'll be very happy to do a full show on it. Uh, let us know if you drink milk. It'd be a good idea to get a poll on how many of our audience members actually are lactose tolerant. Uh, so, I guess we can move on to yeah, our next topic. Story. Yeah, we can so, move on to our... our... I, I have one final thing. Oh. Go ahead, Nick. So, back in back in uh, back in Zog in system school, the small ones, uh, um, I used to buy milk at the cafeteria. Those little cartons, right? Right. And on the milk, it always said uh, that this milk is not treated with RBST, which is a growth hormone. But it all. Also said that it gave another the second disclaimer that said that consumption of milk treated by RBST is not harmful to humans. I I I think about that sometimes. Maybe that I, that red pill it was red pill. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of weird stuff. It's hard to necessarily figure out with the dairy industry. Um, there's been tales of corruption and chemical imbalances and all kinds of problems with it for decades. And uh, I, I think that a lot of it can be traced back to, like many of our ills and many of the uh, paradoxes of modern American life, it can be traced back to that sort of sweet spot of complete overhaul uh, in, you know, 1880s to 1920s. Um, it's, it's another one of well, those it, lines. It would be like if you looked to, I know pe people don't drink milk anymore, but like if you look at your white monster and it was to say on your white monster can that, this white monster does not contain cyanide. And then it also went on to say how it's good also that you know that cyanide is not harmful for human consumption. It's strange, dude. I've just never I've never gotten an explanation for that. I'll just I'll just leave that there and we can move on. But that that was my milk story. It it probably oh, was it probably was a legal compromise settlement between the uh dairy producers and that were suing them for putting growth hormone in the product that they would disclose the status of the milk, uh, but be required also to have that advertisement for the industry as a whole. Um, I mean, I can, I can't think of any other reason. It, it's basically just a compromise. It seems like, well, oh yeah, some lawyer got paid. You could look at it and say yes this is the product of rent seeking as everything else is in america well uh there's some moving on or there's some uh 
weird things happening in the financial world for those of you who deign to follow <laughs> the uh, the arcane workings of corporate finance. Um, lots of new terms being thrown around. Uh, lots of very obscure technical patterns being thrown around. One of the terms that I uh, had no knowledge of, and I try to believe that I have some level of financial knowledge, is was this uh, reverse repo. Have you guys ever heard of this? I have, but I, I don't know how it works. So do you, can you explain it? I'll read from uh, Wolf Richter over at Wolf Street. If you guys are interested, I don't normally recommend like blogs to read. Um, you should read Wolf Street. Uh, every couple of days, the guy puts up an article. Uh, it's like Zero Hedge, but not, um, you know, like terrible. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit more thought out. I think at this point, like most, or at least some portion of the articles that are on Zero Hedge are just reposted from Wolf Street. Um, I, I, I enjoy Zero Hedge. I mean, it's definitely got a uh, bearish bias politically as well as financially but uh you know there, there's some good stuff in there i think they're they, they serve they, they serve a purpose yeah um i think that the old joke about calling them an hero hedge is definitely <laughs> it's still appropriate um so this is from wolf richter the fed sold a record 503 billion dollars in Treasury Securities this morning via overnight reverse repos to 59 counterparties and thereby took in $503 billion in cash from the counterparties. These overnight RPRs, uh, I'm sorry, RRPs will mature and unwind tomorrow to record yesterday's record $497 billion in overnight RRPs matured this morning and replaced by this new and even larger flood. Uh, they drain cash from the market and are liabilities on the Fed's balance sheet, money the Fed owes to the counterparty counterparties. And he points out that there was a very peculiar brief moment um, started in 2014 where the Fed began to do the same tapering measure, you could call it, to kind of counterbalance quantitative easing technical adjustment. And they started basically doing these RRP balances and this continued from 2017 to 2019 when there was basically a new mandate to the Fed that they need to unwind some of these items on their balance sheet. You know, the Fed balance sheet had grown to several trillion dollars. It was sort of unprecedented. And um, as we later learned, this, the experience of uh, 2008 and the after effects was really uh, felt like a dry run for what they ended up doing last year, which was basically just buying toxic assets in order to buoy a market. And inevitably, you know, you increase the money supply, you increase the supply of credit in the market, and you need to offset that because if there's too much liquidity in the market, you have speculatory problems and it becomes like a sort of feedback loop of issues. So uh, the Fed began doing these reverse repo procedures and uh from what i can tell i think that there is now an acknowledgement that all the liquidity in the market has created this sort of nightmare scenario where you have uh, 
uh, way too much speculation, way too much liquidity. You have a lot of um, sort of poor fiscal planning, a lot of poor corporate strategic planning. You have companies that are not really engaging in capital investment. Business investment and capital investment are all down across the board. You don't have research labs being sprung up. Basically, the whole idea of why you would do this sort of um, QE is you could then spur businesses to take some kind of action. And all you've really done is create a sort of uh, ETF run, and you've created a run to the equity markets that hasn't resulted in any new real wealth creation. You've effectively just created a market awash in liquidity um, with a lot of IPOs of companies that don't really matter. So it's interesting that the Fed is now attempting to do on a very short and a much shorter time scale what they did years ago. So the tapering, you know, the, the QE project really goes from 2008 onwards and especially into about 2010, then it tape goes off. And then the Fed waits a few years to ensure what they think is the stability of certain markets, mostly the equity and housing markets. And then they begin this reverse repo process to try and take liquidity out of the market. Now the Fed is doing this, but on a much, much shorter variance of time. So they flood the market with QE midway through 2020. And in about a year's time, they start to do a reverse of that. Instead of waiting roughly six years, they wait roughly a year. And so there's, there's, a peculiar phenomenon here, I don't think many people have really touched on it yet, other than some people kind of in the alternative finance blogging sphere, which is we're starting to see the shortening of time spans for these both financial events and the counter events. And inevitably, this just doesn't scale where the next crisis, you know, the Fed will have to increase the money supply by an immense factor, probably, you know, expend 20, 30 trillion dollars in new assets on the balance sheets and then have to spin up 10, 15 trillion in liabilities to counteract that. So the scale of the monetary supply and the scale of the market manipulation just to maintain stability has, has kind of gotten out of control. Um, and I think it's also very peculiar that there's now this uh, this new mandate at the Fed, if you've been paying attention. At least they're trying to get a new mandate at the Fed. They're definitely working on it over at Treasury, which is that um, part of the mission of the Fed and the Treasury now need to be addressing climate change, racial disparities, and a couple other pet issues. What's interesting is the Fed will kind of pantomime that, but is clearly invested in um, something a lot bigger, which is market stability and also finding increasingly advanced technical means of offsetting the tools that you use to maintain market stability. So while like you know Jay Powell will go up and and agree that like, yeah, we need to, to, to help black people or <laughs> whatever. You can tell that the Fed is one of the few institutions, while they do have plenty of their own machinations and, and political games, 
um, and there's something devious going on there. This one of the few institutions that is not actively engaging in this sort of rent seeking uh, and this, the indulgence of the rent seekers. They are clearly freaked out about bigger things and they'll pay lip service to this stuff, but they are going to continue working on, I think, their big project, which is um, trying to find the golden ratio of amount of time multiplied by amount of money multiplied by time variant or you know, divided by the time variance multiplied by the amount of RRPs that you need to take. And they're going to eventually concoct the right formula for how to deal with a financial crisis. I think that that is kind of what they're ultimately working on here. Um, they can't, it seems like they can't really afford or they don't want another 2008. And you can see this in um, some of what we've talked about, like the sawmills, but the lumber industry and lumber markets in general. Uh, there's a very obvious and clear attempt to artificially ensure that the price of lumber stays high. Whatever, however you do that, there's a there's hundred ways you can do that. Uh, because that is one of the various tools that you can use as a market proxy to ensure that the value of housing never goes down. Housing prices continue to go up. Uh, and I think that 2008 is sort of their, their big worry again. And all of these maneuvers are, I think, a way of preventing another housing crash. I don't know if you see it similarly, Adam. But it seems to me all of this, particularly the reverse repos, uh, coinciding with all the manipulation, the housing market and uh, lumber markets, and just pretty much every raw materials market on the planet. Uh, it seems to me like there's a, there's a very visceral attempt to uh, ensure that there's permanent price inflation across pretty much every kind of asset you can think of. Well... Uh, the the financial or speculative assets that are owned by the uh, the elites are certainly benefiting uh, the most, um, and in many cases that includes commodities because that is an asset class that you can quote invest in. I would basically say speculate in at this point because you just buy futures on it. Uh, you don't actually take delivery, which is of course what the uh, forward and futures market were originally designed for for people who are manufacturers and farmers and producers to hedge their risk. But 10% of that is actually, or 10% of the whole market is what that takes up today. It uh, used to be 90%, but now that's been reversed where 90% of the uh, trading activity in the uh, futures market is now dominated by speculative hedge funds, which uh, add arguably negative value to the economy. Yeah. They'll claim it, it, it creates liquidity, creates price discovery. Um, I think that's a lot of bullshit. But uh, in any case, well, there, uh, there's actually a um, there's a there, there's a really good book uh, that came out maybe a decade ago. It was called uh, "The Futures," it's literally just history of the fu like the futures market uh, by Lambert, someone Lambert. Great book, really short. You can get it on LibGen. 
you guys are curious about that, it's actually it actually kind of makes Adam's case uh, that you know the, the, it was the history of the Chicago Exchange and Chicago trade, and it was basically just commodities and hard assets. There was there was a real before there was a um, devious purpose to the futures market. There was a legitimate economic purpose to it that has been, I think, kind of corrupted. But but go on, Adam. What what were you saying? Well, you know, not much more. Um, I have to say that the you know all this uh, interest rate reduction as well has played a big role in at least the real estate market. But the lending requirements have gotten very strict. And so again, it it benefits the big players. Uh, if you're a private equity group going into uh, single-family housing, you know, as an investment portfolio play, you can do it because the banks will give you pretty good pretty good deals. But if you're just a small person trying to do that, um, and it's not your single-family home, it's not your primary residence. It's it's really hard. So. There's uh, yet again another example of favoritism for the bigger, bigger guys. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty, there's... pretty fucked up, man. I mean, you have a situation <laughs> where there's no productive putting your so rent seeking off of working class people. I mean, wow, America. Yeah, it's well, pretty there bad. A, there was an article, um, there's been a string of articles, mostly in the Wall Street Journal uh, and a couple other places. I don't know why there's, uh, there's a bent over at the Wall Street Journal to talk about this issue. Um, it's probably a game going on here, but they have been covering this topic extensively for at least the last year, uh, which is the, the radical change in nature of the housing market. Uh, and so they wrote an article in April this year, and it was basically titled, If You Sell a House These Days, the Buyer Might Be a Pension Fund. Yield-chasing investors are snapping up single-family homes, competing with ordinary Americans and driving up prices. Uh, and... Uh, it says a bidding war broke out this winter at a new subdivision north of Houston, but the prize this time is the entire subdivision, not just a single suburban house, illustrating the rise of big investors as a potent new force in the U.S. housing market. And this should be illegal. Yeah, and, I mean, and so this is this is just fucking criminal behavior. People have been noticing this for. Um, the last the last few years, and I think it's gotten to the point where they can no longer um, they can no longer hide it. There was another article from Wall Street Journal, "Meet Your New Landlord, Wall Street," and it basically goes into how BlackRock, Blackstone, a few other groups have effectively. Uh, there's another one called Equity Residential. They're terrible. If you ever have to deal with them, I'm I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, but there's lots of these groups that have basically gotten into either owning condo buildings, um, converting old uh, real estate into apartment buildings, um, buying up whole neighborhoods, and the whole intention is just to have a permanent rentier economy. Um, and 
the, effectively what's going to happen is that you will no longer be able to necessarily be uh, acquire the capital to buy a house. You will have to rent a house permanently. Uh, it, it's it's extremely extremely strange. I don't I don't really know what what is motivating this, but it, it's uh it's it's very curious. At least under feudalism, your landlord is. A- the very least a descendant of some kind of warrior who provided some service at some point to the people. Right. Like, who are these people? I mean, it's that sons and black, black rock, uh, <laughs> you know, the one that's, uh, writing our, our federal government's, uh, monetary policy. Uh, yeah. 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 Right. Right. Um, Disgusting. I think this is a major chimping point from you know what I've seen. I think that that housing prices are going to be a major a major uh, lit fuse for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's becoming it's becoming completely insane. I, I saw a Ramsey Paul post today in 1964. Uh, I don't remember the specific numbers, but I, I, I did the calculations in my head because I wanted to effectively just normalize it for like share of income. Uh, back in um, 1964, you could buy a house with two years, two years of your annual income. Uh, think about that. So if you make uh, 50 grand a year, you could buy a house for 100 grand today now in some places that's possible but you know if you have a 50 grand job fifty thousand a year uh job you're probably living in a big metro and i think probably the cheapest you're going to get is two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand realistically for a house so the cost of living has actually gone up by two to three times at least for your typical american since the 60s uh, I think the there's been similar analysis on uh, what a Ford Mustang costs. I don't remember specifically what the numbers are, uh, but the um, you know all the stuff that's been imported from Asia, where the real productivity has happened, uh, those prices have gone down, of course, uh, and that's why Americans have lost their jobs because they haven't really kept up. Uh, but the stuff that Americans do produce, it's all gotten worse, <laughs> which is really really pathetic. Um, how this empire holds together uh, beats me, I guess, the military. But uh, it, it, it just doesn't make financial sense. Like, it doesn't add up. So this is why I, I, I rail on about you know, this, this money printing stuff. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, you, you get a boost, but it's like injecting uh, you know, a sick patient with, uh, with, with drugs. I mean, that, that's the old Ron Paul line, but he's not wrong. Uh, the patient's sick and, you know, yeah, it'll feel good, but it won't fix the underlying problem. Uh, what will, I mean, you know, uh, this has been tried, uh, before, um, we fought a war over it. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it, I'll leave it to the, uh, humble listener to think about that one. But, um, what can you do as a little person? Uh, not much, unfortunately, uh, you, you just kind of have to recognize that the system is getting more and more um, consolidated at the top. And uh, my advice is really just to try to 
use it where you can, where you, you do have whatever leverage that's left. Uh, but, um, invest in yourself and those that you consider your kin, because they're really going to be the only people that have your back. And so try to try to get independent, um, as much as you can. There was a, again, speaking of the wall street journal, they did a, they did another article, uh, on this topic on the June 7th. So a few days ago, and, uh, the title of this one was Built to Rent Suburbs Are Poised to Spread Across the U.S. Uh, today, built to rent homes make up just over 6% of new homes built in the U.S. every year, according to Hunter Housing Economics, a real estate consulting firm, which projects the number of these homes built annually will double by 2024. The country's largest home builders are planning for that future. Backed by banks and private investment firms, they have already bet billions on the sector and will put some $40 billion more during the next 18 months. Uh, one guy said uh, it could be up to 50% of his total business next year. Homeownership is expected to decline over the next two decades, a trend that started with the generation after the boomers. Prices are rising faster than ever, leaving more people, including those without higher incomes, more likely to rent. Built-to-rent subdivisions are attractive to some urban apartment renters who want to move to the suburbs but are unable or uninterested in buying a home. I mean, this is... I even call it a home at that point. Yeah. I mean, that's not what it is. There's something very bizarre. It is a misnomer. That's not a home. they're They're selling you a brand. Like they're selling you a a rented product. This is this is a wider trend that I that other people have have brought up. I think we've even brought it up on this show the 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 transition to the uh, insurance and rentier economy, where you have insurance on everything and you also rent everything. Um, so you rent appliances, you you sort of you rent access to digital files, you rent property, you you rent everything is rented. You you know, you don't really own your car, you certainly don't own any hard assets. You maybe own, you know, a portfolio, a 401k, you own some some crypto, some ETFs, whatever, but you, that, that's like the most assets you really own. Uh, and in, in effect, you're just renting liquidity from the Fed and large asset managers. So you don't really own anything anymore. And I don't know what's necessarily motivating this, but it, it's it started to really come to the forefront the last few weeks. And I uh, I I can't really go into who's behind it, other than it's obviously the usual suspects. I mean, in all of the articles, and these aren't even hard, these are not even uh, sort of alt alternative sphere articles. It's very explicit. Uh, who's behind it? I don't even have to go into it. You know, like it, it's, it's clearly Blackstone. It's clearly BlackRock. It's clearly equity residential. It is, it's a conglomeration of large private equity and large, and some venture capital firms. And the entire point seems to be they come you have a renter economy. All of dues. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, 
it's it's also peculiar because I don't know how this doesn't wake up more people. Like, how do you how do you not see that you're being sold lie, a complete lie, and then not immediately then question who's selling me this lie? Because when when upper middle class faggot food while read this shit, you know what they think? First thought that comes to their mind is how do I get in on this? Yeah. I mean, I, I fully expect that um, you, will, you are not going to be able to buy a home effectively in 30 years. It'd just be impossible. And I think that one of the other stories that I think Nick, years, had, dude, <laughs> if well, we continue you, like this, try fucking 10 years. Well, you brought this up the other day, um, all the land acquisitions that basically all of our new kind of oligarchs have engaged in, or they're buying just ungodly amounts of acres of land left and right. And it's not really clear what the agenda here is. Some well, is well, specifically of, farmland. What, what was peculiar was Bill farmland. Gates who's pushing, you know, Soylent Green on us with this uh, vegetable uh, hamburger crap. Um, he's been buying up uh, cattle, cattle land, cattle ranching. I mean, it's like, okay, dude, you know, like... It's he's like, the largest landholder farmland well ted turner used to be or is pretty close at least and uh you know he also owns uh i think buffalo rangeland ranchland um and these are all they're, they're both eugenicists which uh, i'm not necessarily against but they want to crush the uh, world population i don't think it's any mystery at all yeah it's the reason that you do this if you're bill gates is so that you're in a position to restrict production he's a monopolist but I mean, that's his old. That's always been his business model, anyways. That's what Microsoft is. Well, it it's actually very reminiscent of um, the J.P. Morgan triangulation of the railroad industry and the land speculation industry. I mean, eventually, J.P. Morgan through the banks and through his bank just bought the land and bought the railroads, and he decided that he was going to control the dynamic of the railroad industry, the dynamic of the land speculation industry, which is buying all the land and buying all the railroads. And he could control a new... Yeah, and what you're going to see, yeah. you're, you're going to have a situation, I mean, it's, it's not fantastical at all, it's where we're headed, where it's like, oh yeah, sorry, Goyam, the bank is foreclosing on your property so that we can make sure nothing grows on it. Well, I think that part, I assume part of what they're attempting to do is not necessarily get farming land. I think they want to get grazing land because I think that they want to be able to successfully lock out anyone from, uh, you know, acquiring a small herd of animals and trying to engage in some kind of pastoralist or just, you know, sort of simpler existence. And one of the ways that you historically could do that was with a small flock of of animals and you you don't necessarily have to be a farmer you just are you're a herder and if you are able to successfully lock out all of the grazing lands all of the foothills all the meadows all the brooks all the streams you've made that impossible and people are then reliant on farmland more so than ever 
I think that that is the ult- I think that's part of the plan is to not necessarily control the farmland. It's to Ed, ensure Ed Turner, by the way, was notorious for that kind of stuff. Yeah, you were reliant on the farmland by giving you no alternatives for food supply. I think, and I that, and then that fits with all of their kind of general pet projects and so forth. I am driving in my car up Highway One. I left LA without telling anyone. There were people who needed something from me, but I'm sure they'll get. Second. 